last couple of months. Um, been working with a, a teaching called um, the perfections of the heart, or um, perhaps in other languages to describe them as a, as our Buddha nature, as a description of our, of our awakened state or awakened capacity. Um, and these are ten qualities that one could develop, if you will, um, but more importantly, they're aspects or qualities of our innate being um, that we can recognize um, and manifest in the world. And some of the ones that we've worked with include integrity and generosity, and patience, compassion. Um, and tonight, the quality of the awakened heart um, that I'd like to talk about is the quality of truthfulness. Um, o nobly born begin many of the Buddhist texts. You who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, of the awakened ones, remember who you really are. And it says in one of the greatest Buddhist texts that if the element of the truth seeker did not already exist within you, there would be no path, no discovery, no awakening of wisdom, no awakening of compassion. But because the element of truth seeker is within you, there's a part of you that already knows who you are and wants to awaken to this mystery. Because this is a part of you, it takes you in this journey of discovery. Now, one of the interesting things about the quality of satya or truth um, as, as a spiritual um, capacity is that when you look in the mythology of the um, perfections, there is this whole story of how to, to become a Buddha one practices these qualities of patience and generosity and integrity and so forth for 100,000 mahakalpas of lifetimes, this enormous you know, time, time scale. Um, and in those stories about the Buddha and past lives and things, which may or may not be true, you'll find out later, but we'll just leave them just as a, who knows, possibility. Um, it's said that all the lives that led up to the Buddha manifesting as the awakened one, he made a lot of mistakes. He hurt people, he killed beings, he did all kinds of terrible things um, on his way to becoming a Buddha. But there's one thing that he didn't do. He didn't lie about it. He told the truth about what happened, no matter what it was, good, bad, or in the middle. And this willingness to see the way things are, honestly, straightforwardly, and directly is that which inevitably leads us to freedom. The last words of the Buddha um, in the story that's written of his death, when he turned to those around him, he said, make of yourself a light. Make of yourself a light. Like a lamp in a dark place, it doesn't matter how long the darkness has been there, as soon as the lamp is illuminated, it shows the way things are. Be a light unto yourself. So, um, 
if we're to awaken, if we're to live with integrity and freedom and compassion and understanding, we have to see very directly who we are, remember who we are, see the circumstances of this life, and see it clearly and deeply. Um, Otherwise, we're lost. John invited his mother over for dinner. During the meal, his mother couldn't help noticing how beautiful John's roommate was. She had long been suspicious of a relationship between John and his roommate, and this only made her more curious. And watching the two interact over the evening, she really wondered if there was more to their relationship that met the eye. Reading his mother's thoughts, John volunteered, I know what you might be thinking, but I assure you Carrie and I are just roommates. About a week later, Carrie came to John and said, You know, ever since your mother was here for dinner, I've been unable to find the beautiful silver soup ladle. You don't think she did something with it, do you? I doubt it, but I'll email her just in case. So he wrote down, Dear Mother, I'm not saying you did or didn't do anything with the soup ladle, but it's odd it disappeared when, you know, after the dinner. And do you know anything about this? And later she received an email, he received an email from his mother which read, Dear Son, I'm not saying that you do sleep with Carrie. I'm not saying you don't. But the fact remains that if she was sleeping in her own bed, she would have found the soup ladle by now. <laughs> Love, mother. And the title of this is Don't Lie to Your Mother, right? So the Buddha somehow figured this out very early on that it really wasn't a strategy that was going to work in the long run. Florence Nightingale, one of the founders of modern nursing and healing, says, I attribute my success to this. I never gave nor took an excuse. I was just there with the way things are. So the one thing is to not fool yourself. And as we begin to pay attention, the capacity to see the way things are, to see the truth begins to bring us freedom or liberation. For it is knowing the way things are, seeing the truth that liberates, not your efforts to be free. It's not that you have to do something. You have to see this human incarnation and the predicament you find yourself in. Now, we live in a culture that is not terribly fond of the truth in certain ways. I'm sure you've noticed this. Um, The best adjusted person in modern society is the person who's not dead and not alive, just numb, a zombie. Because if you're dead, you're not able to work for the society. But if you're fully alive, you must constantly say no to many of the unhealthy processes of the society and the harmful ones, the polluted environment, the nuclear threat, the racism, the continuing warfare, the arms race, drinking unsafe water, eating carcinogenic foods... Thus, it is in the interest of modern consumer society to promote the things that take the edge off and keep us busy with our fixes, keep us slightly numbed out and zombie-like. In this way, modern consumer society itself functions as an addict. And you can hear some of the truth in that, that we put ourselves to sleep or we participate in a kind of mass Hypnosis. Somebody asked my teacher, Ajahn Chah, wasn't meditation kind of like self-hypnosis? And he replied, actually, it's more like dehypnosis. It's stopping 
you know, all the reactions and the thoughts and, and the ways that we get entangled and quieting the mind so that we can see clearly without all the advertising. Um, and so here's a culture of addiction and denial, if you will. Um, and the ads are phenomenal because, you know, half of what they say aren't true. All the time we're barraged by stuff that's not true. Or do we want to talk about politics, you know, or the news? Um, or the way we, you know, name things, the peacekeeper missile. It used to be the War Department, now it's the Defense Department, right? I mean, uh, surgical strikes. Please. You know, um, Gloria Steinem said, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. (laughs) And there's something about that, that when we step out of denial, this is the cultural denial, but it's also denial of things that, that we haven't wanted to look at about life itself in our own personal life. All of that... Uh, the, the denial serves us in a certain way to keep us numbed out, to, to not have to really face what's difficult. Um, and we, we know it and we see it and, and um, uh, our children get this too. And they're brought up in a sea of... I mean, can you imagine if, um, if people told the truth and... Um, Government, business, um, uh, journalism. I mean, I, it's almost unthinkable. I mean, some of it's there. There is some truth. but uh. So the Soviet Union um, in 1988 under Mikhail Gorbachev canceled all the history exams throughout the country. Izvestia, the official government um, organ newspaper, made a statement saying that the history textbooks had taught generations of Soviet children lies that poisoned their minds and souls. And when it announced the final history exams, canceled for 53 million students. Reporting the cancellation, the government said the extraordinary decision was intended to end the passing of lies from generation to generation. The guilt of those who deluded one generation and another and poisoned the minds and souls of their children with lies is immeasurable, and today we are reaping the bitter fruits of our own moral laxity, which now brings the blush of shame to our faces about which we do not know how to answer our children honestly. Decades of not telling the truth about Stalin and the gulags and so forth. This is at least a moment in a society which says, all right, let's tell the truth to our children. The following statements are um, uh, written um, as they were found on insurance forms of car drivers' uh, description of their accidents. Um, Coming home, I drove into the wrong house and collided with a tree I don't have. Or how do you describe your accident? I collided with a stationary truck coming the other way. A pedestrian hit me and went under my car. (laughs) The guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. (laughs) I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law and headed over the embankment. (laughs) 
My car was legally parked as it backed into the other vehicle. I was sure the old fellow would never make it to the other side of the road when I struck him. (laughs) The telephone pole was approaching. I was attempting to swerve out of the way when it struck the front end of my car. (laughs) Oh, Lord. So there's this part of us that doesn't really want to look (laughs) and doesn't want to see. It was the power of the Buddha, at least in the stories and the texts that are told, um, it was the power of the Buddha to give voice to the truth, to point to it, to see it. It It's called the lion's roar, to say this is actually the incarnation and the, the, the reality into which you are born. I searched in vain for firm ground, for a place to stand, and then I realized I could not find a base that is changeless, for all is in flux, and change is the reality. One of his statements. Or um, the Buddha gathered um, his disciples around him on, um, in Rajgir, on the peak of a mountain, and uh, on this particular day, and he offered to them what was called the fire sermon. He said, monks and nuns, my friends, everything is burning. What is burning? The eye is burning, the ear is burning, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind are burning. And with what are they burning? They are burning with the fires of greed and grasping, with the fires of anger and hatred, with the fires of ignorance. Those who see the fire of greed and hatred and ignorance become weary of the burning at the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, and the body and mind. They divest themselves, they release themselves from greed, from hatred, from ignorance, and realize that the fire is exhausted and that their hearts are freed. Um, That's also pretty tough medicine, to look at the way that we live in the world when we're entangled in grasping and greed and hatred and... and, uh, ignorance, Um, and you say, well, what does this have to do with me? I see sort of clearly, perhaps. But if we look around the world as a whole, the continuing warfare and the continuing racism and the continuing destruction of the environment, it comes, those are fires, and those fires come from greed, human greed. They come from hatred, human hatred. They come from ignorance. So this is the kind of fire that humanity carries in a way that makes suffering. And when the Buddha said this, and as the story was told, these thousands of people listened to him, in that moment many of them changed their whole lives. They heard this and they said, okay, this is not the way I will live. So there's a great power, not just to the telling of the truth, but the seeing of it. And one of the great, one of the favors, Rumi talks about it in a poem. He says at some point, your old grandmother says, maybe you shouldn't go to school, you look a little pale. Run when you hear that, you know. A father's stern lecture is better. Um, We've been too busy accumulating solace. Make us afraid of how lost we can be. Pray for a tough instructor to hear and act and be with you, see what is, completely don't run away. 
This is Rumi's advice. So again, this is kind of tough, uh, tough advice. Um, but if we are to find that which is unshakable in ourselves, it means that we have to look at the world and to look at our own heart with a steady gaze and with a deep kind of honesty. Now, one of the things that helped me um, when I trained in the monasteries was that my teacher, Ajahn Chah, was a really straightforward and honest person. Um, He would look at somebody and if they were having a hard time, he'd say, are you suffering? And they'd say yes or no. If they said no, he said, oh, great, have a good day. And if they said yes, he said, hmm, must be quite attached. And then he'd laugh and kind of trundle (laughs) off, and that was all, you know. It was that simple for him, you know. Or um, people would complain about the noise in the monastery because there was, you know, some festival happening in the village nearby. And he would say, the noise is bothering you? person would say, he said, I want you to ask, answer a question. Who's bothering whom? The noise is just there. Who's bothering it? You know, and just look at people that way. We went on a ride. We were invited to go to this little temple on the Cambodian border. Um, <clears throat> and so he and I were in the back of this car. There was a young driver. Um, and it was a one and a half lane dirt road going through the mountains of this part of Thailand and the forest. Um, and this young guy was just an insane driver. He just drove so fast and would skid around the curves. And Ajahn Chah asked him to slow down, and he hardly did. Um, and the main thing was you'd go around these curves, and you couldn't see what was coming. And once in a while, not that often, there'd be a big logging truck or a big bus, you know. And I thought for sure I was going to die, and I'm holding on and, you know, terrified, really. And then I look over at Ajahn Chah, and I see that his knuckles are white, and he's holding on to, and somehow that was comforting. I don't know, why, you know. <laughs> and finally, after about an hour of that, an hour and a half of that, we pull into the courtyard of this monastery, of this temple on the Cambodian border, and the car stops. The young guy opens the door and gets out, and we're just sitting there for a minute. And Ajahn Chah turns to me, and he smiles, and he said, "Scary ride, wasn't it?" You know. <laughs> and I don't think he was afraid to die. I don't think it was that. But he was just naming it, this is the way it was. That was a really scary ride, and that's, that's what it was. And the ability to say, this is the way that it is, it's like this, is enormously liberating. Our loss is like this, our grief is like this, the conflict we're in is like this, the longing, the love we have is like this. Things are the way they are, and then we can respond to them. But this capacity of our awakened heart is to see the way things are as if we, if we could bow to it and say, that was a scary ride, wasn't it? And this is, now my body is sick. This is a difficult illness, isn't it? It's the way things are. And that brings wisdom. And it also brings a compassion. Um, because you're a part of it. You're not like stepping aside and denying it and so forth. You realize we are, we're all in it together. As W.H. Auden says, you learn to love your crooked neighbor with your own crooked heart. Right? There's some way that we face this is our humanity, the tainted glory of, of humanity. One does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. That's from, from Carl Jung. So when we stop, when we quiet the mind, and open the heart, then we begin to see 
the way things are. And we see on different levels. There is a kind of surface level, if you will, and then there's a, there's a deeper level that we can see into. And I've been reading uh, uh, the galley proofs of this new book called Tattoos on the Heart by a man named Father Greg Boyle who runs Homeboy Industries in, in uh, the ghettos in Los Angeles. And I work with a number of the gang kids who come out of Homeboys. They have, they have a bakery, they have a, a garment kind of factory where they make Homeboy sweatshirts and, you know... Um, she-she gang apparel that gets sold in New York. and I mean, it's funny, but they do. That's how they support them. And they also go, they have a graffiti removal squad. And then it's just amazing stories that he tells. But here's the story of um, this uh, guy, J.J., who he knew from the projects in Watts since he was like a little kid. And J.J.'s always getting in trouble, as most of his young men and young women are, gangbangers. And he... Uh, J.J.'s just come out of four years of prison, and he calls him and says, you know, he says, Father G., I, I need your help. And his Father G. says, what do you need? He says, I, go, I, I don't got no clothes. I'm just out of prison. I got nothing. And my ex, she burned everything. And we don't even want to ask about that. Um, so Father Greg goes and picks him up and takes him to J.C. Penney's and says, you got $200 to dress yourself, and he gets all this, you know. And he goes around the store and his head is shaven, and he's got all these tattoos, and he's all, you know, worked out with weights in the prison and stuff. And, and people start kind of moving away from him, whatever aisle he goes on. And he says, um, I mean, damn, Father G, do I look that scary? And Father G says, yeah, pretty much, dog. You know, it's just like that's the way that it is, you know. So then, 3 o'clock the next morning, the phone rings, and it's J.J., and he says what every home he says when they call me in the middle of the night, did I wake you? I'm, I always think, why no, I was just waiting for you to call, right? Hoping. <laughs> but JJ's sober and it's urgent. He's got to talk to me. I got to ask you a question. You know how I've always been, seen you as my father ever since I was a little kid? Of course, his father disappeared, you know, after being abusive very little. Well, I got to ask you a question. Now JJ pauses and the gravity of it all makes his voice waver and crumble. Have I been kind of your son? Oh, hell yeah, I say. Wow, he exhales, I thought so. And then his voice becomes enmeshed in a cadence of gentle sobbing. Then, then I will be your son, and you, you'll, you'll be like my father, right? And, and we won't be separated, right? That's right, I say. And in this 3 a.m. call, J.J. did not discover that he has a father. He discovered that he is a son, he is a son worth having. But that's really what he is asking. Am I worthy of, have, of being someone's son? And so there are levels to truth. When we meet with someone, we can meet their personality or the work that they do or the costume that they wear or the, you know, the class that they're in in terms of money or accomplishment. Or we can see them as Father G was seeing from the deeper level, from the soul level, from the level of spirit. And that capacity to see one another deeply um, is part of what it means to see the truth and to tell the truth. Who are we really? Another way of telling the truth, a story I tell 
often and regularly of being with my Cambodian teacher and friend Mahagosananda in the Cambodian refugee camps. Um, and particularly working in one camp, several camps, but this one, Sakeo, was the camp where 50,000 villagers had been more or less converted to be communists at gunpoint by the Khmer Rouge and so much destruction and death and then a lot of them poured over the border into this camp and Mago Sananda opened this little got permission from the UNHCR High Commissioner of Refugees to open this little Buddhist temple in the center of the camp Um, 50,000 people in these little bamboo huts in a very dry, hot flat rice paddy, you know, um, without hardly any water or shade. Um, and when the Khmer Rouge found out there was going to be a temple open, they let it be known that anybody who went to this opening um, would be killed later when they returned to Cambodia. So it wasn't clear whether people would come at all. But he was this incredibly good-hearted, loving monk who was spared and being killed, most of his family and monastery were all killed, and because he was in Thailand for the worst of it. And so we went around ringing the bell once this bamboo temple was made, and in the central square, um, 25,000 people came. Half the camp showed up. And he sat there in this dusty camp looking out over a crowd of faces that were the faces of trauma and of loss of people, one uncle and his two nieces who'd survived, a grandmother and two grandchildren. Everybody had lost, family members, temples burned, schools destroyed. Um, and I thought, what is he going to say to these people who've lost so much? And he put his hands together and he just began to chant to them the sounds in Cambodian and in Sanskrit that they hadn't heard for eight years in this beautiful kind of uh, chanting tone, he began to chant one verse from the Dhammapada that says, Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And he chanted it over and over and over. And pretty soon people started to chant with him And after a while, 25,000 people were singing, hatred never ends by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient eternal law. Um, And it was as if he was speaking a truth that was even bigger than their sorrows. Yes, there's destruction. Yes, there's killing. Yes, there's the things that have happened to you. And still, there is no end to this without love. Hatred never ends by hatred. And here is a truth that is the balm and the salve and the, the understanding that you need as a human being to move through this difficult life that you've been given. So that is the seeing of and the speaking of the truth. The Buddha speaks of the truth of the heavenly messengers of aging and sickness and death. Um, I remember teaching together with Stephen Levine and he asked, how many of you really think you're going to die? You know, about a third of the hands went up, right? (laughs) 
But it's true, isn't it? You know, this is from Richard Baker Roshi and his Dharma successor, Isan Dorsey. Richard Baker, Zen Center, used to tell his students, if you're with someone who's dying and you're not willing to trade places with them in that very moment, you're not really practicing Zen. So this is a pretty fierce, you know, instruction. So when Isan Dorsey was dying of AIDS, who had a temple in the Castro, Baker Roshi came to visit him saying, I wish I could trade places with you right now. Don't worry, responded Isan, you'll get your chance. <laughs> but to tell the truth or see the truth is to know that, our, that we're mortal, at least our physical and you know, our, our incarnation, our personality, all that stuff. It's limited. It's not going to last. Aging will happen. Not a surprise. Sickness will happen and death will happen. And, you know, talk about denial. Well, sort of, right, but I mean, we put it off to the side and to, lest death makes a little gesture to us. But mostly, we don't. And again, I can hear Stephen's voice, Stephen Levine, saying, well, if you knew that you only had a month left to live or a week left to live, who would you call? What would you say? And why are you waiting? What does it mean to live in the light of this truth? To live with our business finished, if you will, to be current with one another. This is another dimension of living with wisdom. To say, we don't know how much time we have. The path of meditation, and here we come together and sit as we have at the beginning of this evening, is really a practice of truthfulness. This quality, uh, Dhamma Vichaya, Dharma Vichaya, means to see clearly or investigate or know the truth. Um, And so we sit. And we sit with all that arises. It might be the truth of our loneliness or our longing. It might be the truth of this great love or creativity in us that wants to express itself. It might be the truth of feeling small and insecure, you know, or it might be the truth of finding as we sit a connection with the world and really honoring that it's true in us. And so the levels of truth start to uh, open and display themselves to us. And our task is to be present and say, this is the way it is to investigate. Who are we? Because sometimes we feel separate, and we are in some way. We have different names and social security numbers and stuff like that. But that's only part of it. We also interbreathe with the trees of the globe and the atmosphere. And we have nervous systems that are all... Um, set to resonate in interpersonal neurological ways so that our nervous system and you know resonates the way a violin that's played here resonates the strings of the violin that's over there it does and we're not separate in fact we don't exist as a separate individual that's another kind of truth it's sort of an illusion your separateness um 
this from Joko Beck, a Zen teacher. She says, we're rather like whirlpools in the river of life. And flowing forward, the river or stream may hit rocks, branches, irregularities in the stone and cause the whirlpool to spring up. Water entering the whirlpool quickly passes through and rejoins the river. And for a short period, it seems to be distinguishable as a separate event. The water and the whirlpools seem separate, but it's just the river itself. The stability of a whirlpool is only temporary, and the energy of the river of life forms living beings, humans, dogs, cats, trees, plants, and then what held the whirlpool in place is itself altered, and the whirlpool is swept away, re-entering the flow. This is how it works. Kalu Rinpoche says, You live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, but you do not know this. When you understand, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. That's also a kind of potent medicine. There is a reality. When you understand this, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. And we've all had this experience. We all know it. Walking in the mountains or making love or you know, listening to amazing music or the birth of a child or getting high on something or other or whatever. Um, but you know that the sense of separateness is only one part of the truth of this existence. And if we cling to that alone, we're lost. But if we know this amazing thing that we are both separate and connected, then again, from this truth, wisdom, graciousness, understanding grows. And we're asked as we sit and quiet the mind, open the heart, to really see this, to know what is true, the way that it is. Now, If we want to explore this quality, another way to look is at its opposite. From Michael Ventura, he writes, The people you have to lie to own you. The things you have to lie about own you. When your children see you owned, then they are not your children anymore. They are the children of what owns you. If money owns you, they are the children of money. If your need for pretense and illusion owns you, they are the children of pretense and illusion. If your fear of loneliness owns you, they are the children of loneliness. If your fear of truth owns you, they are the children of the fear of truth. The consequences of not being able to tell the truth to ourselves is that we then both can't live with the real courage and wisdom of life and that we shape the lives of those around us without that courage. So we sit, feel the breath, the energies of the body, all these different energies, even the body, you know. There are different truths. Which do we listen to? From Eduardo Galeano. 
Science says the body is a machine. The church says the body is a sin. The marketplace says the body is good business. The body says, I am a fiesta. (laughs) Which of these do we listen to? And it's the capacity to see multiple perspectives and then drop deeply and say, yes, there's the body, yes, there's the personality. We contend, we can respect, and there's something bigger going on in this game of incarnation. And what really matters to you? In the end, when we ask the questions at the end of life, they're not very complicated. Did I love well? Did I live fully? Did I learn to let go when it was time? Because otherwise you get a crash course at the end of life. It's better to learn how to do it as you go along, as things change. Not very complicated. And you find that your ability to bow to what is, to be with what's painful, and to be with joy, because for some people happiness is also difficult. We're really loyal to our suffering, and we don't want to admit that we can feel joy or happiness. And joy is, your, is also your birthright. Happiness is your birthright. And to allow it and to honor it and to feel it is also a part of the truth. To live in joy even in the midst of difficulty, says the Buddha. To find a free and joyful heart as the Dalai Lama or Mahagosananda exemplified. Or, you know, to find that sense of freedom. You are free and no one can take your freedom from you. Nobody. And no circumstance. There is Nelson Mandela walking out of 27 years of Robben Island prison with such magnanimity and graciousness and dignity and compassion. Now he's 91 years old and he's still the the lion of Africa because of his big heart. And that freedom is yours and no one can take it from you. There's a truth to explore. And these aren't things to take and believe. These are things to find and know in yourself. What is freedom? Who am I really? What makes happiness? Does happiness come from clinging and grasping? Or does it come from love, from openness? Look into the truth for yourself. And gradually you practice. You sit, you pay attention. It's as if you come into your own Buddha nature. You say, ah, yes, I sit as the Buddha and I can see the world from the heart of wisdom. This is the way it works. Because it's fleeting. Thus shall ye think of this fleeting world, it says in the Diamond Sutra. A star at dawn, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo a phantom, a rainbow, a dream. It changes so quickly. Now, when you work with truth, there's another really important teaching that the Buddha offers when he speaks about truth. And that is, in giving voice to the truth, mostly this is about seeing what's true in yourself and in this world, But in giving voice to the truth, one must speak in due season, one must speak honestly, one must speak with kindly intent, one must speak 
with loving in the heart, one was one must speak to the benefit of the other. So it's really learning how to speak, even that there's a kind of brutal honesty that we know about as well that's not particularly helpful because we are already so critical of ourselves and of one another. Um, and that's not the truth. That's something much more superficial. Um, but to be able to say that which is true and even that which is difficult, if it's said in due season, if it's said for their benefit, if it's said with a, a, a kind intention, if it's said um, you know, in a gracious way, it makes all the difference. So the truth really becomes married with compassion. And our words then become part of something that awakens not just ourselves, but everybody else. Another story from Tattoos on the Heart from Father Greg. Let's see if I can find this here. So he's at a, a juvenile detention center. Um, and he's sitting there and some of the gang kids come over to talk to him and the next kid approaches me and I can tell I haven't talked to him before but I know his name it's all swagger and pose his walk is you know strutting his highest stuff and his head bobs to make sure everybody's watching him and he sits down we shake hands and he seems unable to shake the scowl entering across his face so what's your name I ask him and all these kids have gang names. Sniper, he sneers. Okay. Okay, look, I've been down this block before. I have a feeling you didn't pop out of your mom and she took one look at your ass and said, Sniper, so come on, dog, what's your name? <laughs> Gonzalez, he says, relenting a little. Okay now, son, I know the staff here will call you by your last name. I'm not down with that. Tell me, mijo, what's your mom call you? Cabron. There's even the slightest flicker of innocence in his answer. Oi, no, cabeduda. But son, I'm looking for a birth certificate here. The kid softens as I laugh. I can tell it's happening, but there's embarrassment and a newfound vulnerability. Napoleon, he manages to squeak out, pronouncing it in Spanish. Wow, I say, that's a fine, noble, historic name. But I'm almost positive that when your Jatifa calls you, she doesn't use the whole nine yardas. Come on, mijito, do you have an apodo? What's your mom call you? Then I watch him go to some far distant place where he hasn't been recently, a location he hasn't visited in some time. His voice, body language, and whole being are taking on a new shape right before my eyes. Sometimes his voice so quiet I lean in. Sometimes when my mom's not mad at me, She calls me Napito. And I watch this kid move, transform from Sniper to Gonzalez to Cabron to Napoleon to Napito. We all just want to be called by the name our mom uses when she's not pissed off at us. And Thomas Merton puts it this way. He says, the gift of sainthood is, a saint is, is, is given the gift of sainthood not because they're such an extraordinary, saintly, wonderful, beautiful person, but because the gift of sainthood allows them to admire everyone else. 
And so this is a different kind of seeing of the truth, to see the secret beauty behind the eyes of every being that you meet. And then the hard part is to see it in ourselves because there is so much shame. And that was in the first Father Boyle story that I read. You know, I don't have any clothes and no one would accept me as a son. But we do that to ourselves also. You know, there's unworthiness and and shame. And to see the beauty in another and then to see the Buddha in yourself. And how would it be to walk and move and be, interact in your world and bring forth your creativity and your love and your gifts from the place of your Buddha nature, from the place of dignity and compassion and courage and clarity that's there in you. It's as, it's as there in you as it is in Nelson Mandela. And it's as trustworthy. William Butler Yeats, we can make our minds so like still water that beings gather around us that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. And that kind of mirror is really what that story of Father Greg was talking about, that he could be still enough with that young man, that he could be a and, and fierce enough in that stillness that he could be a mirror in which that young man could again see his beauty. And I know working as I have at certain times with these young guys and sometimes young, young women too, um, that the thing that saves them is if somebody has seen their beauty. It might be an old grandmother or an uncle or somebody who worked, you know, as the custodian at their school, but somebody had to have seen it for a moment and gotten it reflected into their own eyes. And then there's a seed of knowing that's, that's awakened in them somehow, and it becomes a lifeline. But we need it as well. We need that mirror. We need to be able to see ourselves in that way. We need to tell the truth of who we really are at our best and most beautiful and most dignified and most noble. And it's not that you don't have your problems. I know about that, you know. Me too. It's just part of it. But it's not who we really are. C.S. Lewis writes, A man can no more distinguish the glory of life by refusing to honor it than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling darkness on the walls of his cell. There is something that is golden in your spirit, that is beautiful and that you were born with, and that is timeless and liberated and free, and that can, within you, this part of compassion and truthfulness that can be present for this life, no matter what your injuries are. Um, And you have to work with them, but nevertheless you have the capacity to show up and be awake. It is in you. Um, and it is what um, it is what liberates you. It is what brings you freedom and really deep happiness. And it wants to come out, you know. It does. I mean, it's why you're here, whatever. Or you paid your eight dollars or something like that. But in a way, it's too late for you, you know. 
Um, I remember being in India in Bombay and visiting, spending time with a a teacher um, named Nisargadat Maharaj, who was a teacher in the lineage of Ramana Maharshi of Advaita Vedanta, quite a kind of wild old guy, and lived in this little apartment in Cape Vadi in Bombay. And we would go and spend the day with him. And he was sort of a cross between, oh... Krishnamurti, this incredibly clear mind, and Fritz Perls, because he'd put you on the hot seat as soon as you walked in and give you a hard time. And so we would spend time with him in dialogue. And one day a young kind of world traveler type with his backpack came in, spent an hour in the morning in a little dialogue, and then went away, and never came back. And it was an interesting dialogue. It was kind of engaging. And Maharaja would look at him and say, so where are you coming from? You know, and you could answer on whatever level you dared, right? I would say San Francisco was the safe answer, right? <laughs> I don't come from anywhere. We're just consciousness playing, oh yeah? Hmm, tell me more, whatever. You could, you could try your best Zen answer too. No coming or going. Oh? <laughs> anyway, so a few days later, this young man had come and gone, and somebody raised their hand and said, um, Maharaj, um, Somebody who comes like that for an hour, asks a couple questions and disappears, doesn't stay with the practices that you're offering of inquiry of who am I really, you know, the space of awareness that you teach, doesn't um, devote themselves or dedicate themselves, what will happen? Will they just go back to sleep, you know? And Nisargadot laughed. He said, it's too late. It's too late for him too. He said, you see, that part of him that knows who he really is, that spirit that was born into this incarnation, it started to wake up. He said, and no matter how long it takes now, it's, it's starting to wake up. Nothing can stop it. It's too late. So the same for you, my friends. Too late. I mean, what are you going to do? Go back and cultivate greed and hatred? Come on. You know, it just doesn't work so much anymore, really, does it? Alan Watts wrote a whole book about this entitled The Taboo Against Knowing Who You Are in this culture, the trance that we get put to sleep in. And then in India, you meet someone and the greeting people put their hands together and say, Namaste, I honor who you really are. I honor the divine within you, that spark that took birth in this incarnation. I hope you can remember that. So in us is the Buddha and the Bodhisattva as he sat under the tree of enlightenment in the midst of this world. And the invitation is to see with clarity and an open heart. And it takes an open heart because part of what you see is the unbearable beauty and part of what you see is the um, ocean of suffering. And the suffering and the beauty are woven together, birth and death and joy and sorrow and gain and loss and praise and blame, and they're the fabric of incarnation. So it takes a kind of courage, but you have that courage, you know, and you can see. Sansanim, Sungsan Sansanim, who was a uh, wonderful Korean Zen master with whom I studied over a number of years, wrote a poem. He said, once a great man, he wrote the poem when he was in India at the Mahabodhi temple where there's the great-granddaughter 
tree of the Bodhi tree of the Buddha's enlightenment or so it's said to be, it's that spot and there's this huge tree. Um, And he said, once a great man sat underneath this tree, um, saw the morning star and became enlightened. He absolutely believed his eyes. He believed his ears, his nose, his tongue, his body, his mind. The sky is blue, the earth is brown, Things are as they are. Birth is birth and death is death. And when he saw things the way they are, his heart was freed. This is your invitation as well. To see the way things are, the measure of sorrows, the extraordinary beauty, and to take your seat in the midst of it as the Buddha and say, yes, this, and then to give yourself to this world from the place of your own truthfulness and deep wisdom. So let's sit. And as you sit quietly, you can reflect, what is the truth that wants to be seen or known in regards to your own body? What is the truth that wants to be known or seen in regards to your heart or mind. In regards to the work you do in the world. regards to what you have to offer to this earth.
meditation in this way is paying visits to yourself, having a conversation with your heart and your body and listening. So whatever I've said tonight, you don't have to remember any of it. It's really a a reflection or a reminder. And if some of it really um, touches you or rings true, then of course let that awaken in you and the rest of it you can just discard. Um, This place is the dump, so it's fine. It's what we do here. It's really more the place to let go of stuff so you can be open. Um, Before we go out into this autumn, winter evening, I'd like to do a one-minute chant um, together. Uh, As I said, in India, the most... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.